I love week two. Oh. Let's do this. Let's take a pick of week two. Hold on. Okay, hold on, hold on. Okay, wait a second. Wait. Here we go. One, two, three. Boom. Wait. Ah, it's on live. Hold on. One more, one more. Boom. Okay. Tag me. Okay. Alrighty. Oh, I got to move this forward. Okay. I was like, why am I so far back? All right. Open up your Bibles to John 3. Did you guys have a good day today? How was Super Spirit Day? I love tarps. Okay. John chapter 3. Give me a yip yip when you're there. Hey, is it anybody's birthday today? Tomorrow? Okay, I just always want to ask. Yeah. Mario? Okay. All right, hey, can I do this? Let me, let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into God's word this evening. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for the joy of laughter. God, the joy that comes from being in your creation. I'm always reminded of the words of Edwards that says, nature is God's greatest evangelist. Because, Lord, we can look around and we can look at the mountains and the sky and we can know that this is by no accident, but because the heavens declare the glory of God. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to be together. Lord, the joy of hearing pastors sing silly songs and the joy that comes from singing wonderful songs that contain truth uh, to a God that deserves all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. Lord, I pray that tonight as we look to your word, would you fill us all with an understanding that when the Bible is read and understood, God speaks. So Lord, we're thankful that you continue to speak to us through your living and active word. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would fill us and we pray again with the psalmist, open our eyes, O God, so that we may understand the wonderful things that are here in the scripture. And Lord, they are indeed wonderful. God, I'm so thankful for the joy it is to open up the truth. We pray this in your name. And all God's people said. Okay, John 2, 24. We'll start there actually. Okay, yep, yep. Okay, but Jesus, okay, in chapter two, he turned the water into wine. It's his first miracle. And then he's gonna go and cleanse the temple. And now in verse 24, it says, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. God doesn't need, and we talked about this the other day, anyone to testify about what anyone is thinking or doing because he knows all things. He is omniscient. God being omniscient means he is all-knowing. It comes from a compound Latin word, omnis and scientia. Omnis means all, say omnis. No, kind of more with an accent. Omnis. 
Okay, you guys just looked weird. Okay, omniscientia, which means all knowledge. God is all knowing. He knows every single person better than they know themselves. He sees all, he knows all, he hears all. The camera is always rolling with God. The microphone is always on. He knows everything about you. You may delete your search history, but God searches your heart. He knows everything about you. And we're gonna see divine omniscience in play in chapter three as Jesus has one of the most profound conversations with a man named Nicodemus in the third chapter of John's gospel. There are roughly 6,000 Pharisees in the land of Israel at the time of Jesus. And the Pharisees are the type of guy that we talked about last night. They're the religious people. They're elite. They're scholars. They're respected. They studied the word of God. They would have had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. There are 6,000 of these guys at the time of Jesus's incarnation. And there is only one account in all of the gospels of one of these guys giving his life. To the Lord Jesus Christ. This story makes crystal clear that salvation is not for those who are good. It's not for those who try harder. It's not for those who live better. It's not for those who are moral or more religious. It's not for those who forsake certain sins. It's not for those who pray certain prayers. It's for those who are born again. And I'm going to explain what that means tonight, okay? Let me read the opening verses of John 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. I'll pause there for a moment. I want to look at this story in four scenes. It's a narrative that's being played out. So I want to look at it in four scenes. Scene one, the man. The man's name is Nicodemus, and he's probably one of the most wealthy guys in all of Israel. All Pharisees were teachers, but Jesus is going to later on in this passage say that he is the teacher of Israel. He's the man. He's not just kind of respected. He's the most respected guy Presumably in all of Israel, he's powerful, popular, and he's a prominent figure. And every single time he would have walked by anybody, they would have said, hey, that's Nicodemus. But Nicodemus has a lot on his mind. And he comes to Jesus in the cloak of night because he's full of anxiety and fear because he has no idea if he's actually right with God. Matthew 23 says that the Pharisees were hypocrites. They looked good on the outside, but on the inside they were full of dead men's bones. Could that description define your life? Look good on the outside, but on the inside they're dead. Nicodemus knows every single answer, but he does not know God as his father. He knows the Bible but he does not have any assurance he will go to heaven. He seems to have a lot going for him, but he's deeply concerned. He's deeply distressed because he just wants to know, how can I be made right with God? So he says in verse two, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, 
For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. He says what we already talked about the other night, that the works of Jesus weren't done in a corner. Everybody knows the signs that Jesus is doing. He is healing disease. He's casting out demons. He's walking on water. He's feeding thousands. And Nicodemus isn't a fool. And he asks the question, you must come from God, but Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things, and he knows what Nicodemus is actually after. So he disregards the question Nicodemus asks, and he gets right to the heart of the matter. Scene two, the method. The method. Jesus responds in verse three and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, whenever you see the word unless in the Bible, you need to dial in. You need to focus. You need to understand what it's about to say because unless precludes, which means comes before, a necessary condition. Unless I put gas in the tank, the car will not turn on. Unless I take this medicine, I will not get better. Unless you man up and ask her out, she will, no, kidding. Okay, unless always precludes a necessary condition. We're tracking, yep, yep. Okay, Jesus says, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. The inverse of that is, if those who are not born again will go to an eternity apart from God. Jesus is saying, mark this carefully, Nick. Unless one is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. Then Nicodemus responds and says in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered in verse 5, Truly, truly. He says this a number of times throughout the gospel. It's verily, verily. He said, You can trust what I'm about to say. This is the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot Enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, verse 6, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What is Jesus saying? Well, in order to understand more clearly what Jesus is saying here, we have to understand a reference to the Old Testament. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel. You might need to help a friend here because I don't know how many times you guys have been in Ezekiel before. Ezekiel chapter 36 in verse 25. Remember what we talked about the other night on Monday, that the Bible is one integrated document. Jesus came to fulfill all that was promised and prophesied. And he's saying here that you must be born of the water and the spirit. Are you guys having a hard time finding Ezekiel? It's okay. Mercy, mercy. Okay. How about I read it for you if you can't find it? Okay. This is like a scavenger hunt. Okay, here we go. Ezekiel 36, 25. You ready? Okay, listen up, listen up. This is a prophecy. God is speaking. He's saying, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give to you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Keep your finger there and keep your finger in John 3. Jesus is saying that we need to be born again and we need to be born of water and the spirit. 
And here in this Old Testament prophecy, we see that that refers to our need to be cleansed, to be cleansed completely and entirely from our sin. God says in Ezekiel, I will cleanse you and I will take out that dead heart inside your body, inside your soul, and I will give you a heart of flesh through the power of my spirit. Water in the Old Testament was a symbol of purification. It's a symbol for purity. It means to make clean. We need a total cleansing from our sin. This is the cleansing that David cries out for in Psalm 51. Purge me, O God. You know what purge means? It means I don't want you to just, like a dirty dish, run it under the water. I want you to totally clean me and make me new. And God is saying, there's only one person that can do that. And it's my Holy Spirit. We need to be cleanse, but not only that, he says we need to be born of water and the spirit. The passage says that we have hearts of stone. Turn back to John 3, but keep your finger in Ezekiel 36, okay? He says in verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In Ezekiel 36, it says we have hearts of stone, What that means is that you and I are spiritually dead, spiritually dead. I've told the story, I think, before, but you know the the account in Princess Bride where they take the guy to Miracle Max, you know, he's dying, and he says, there's a difference between all dead and what? Mostly dead. The difference between mostly dead is what? Slightly alive. All dead is all dead. What do you do if someone's all dead? Well, you dig through his pockets and look for loose change, but there's a difference. Biblically speaking, you need to understand this or you'll never understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. People, apart from God, are not just mostly dead. They're not slightly alive. They're all dead, dead, dead. And what the dead need is a miracle. They need to be made alive. And that's why Jesus says, you have a heart of stone. You don't have a heart with a weak, with a weak, a weak beat It's not inconsistent. You don't have a murmuring heart. You have a dead heart. In verse six, he says, all that the flesh, all that is born of the flesh is flesh and all that is born of the spirit is spirit. Here's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Don't you understand it? And because God speaks actively through his word, he grabs you by the proverbial collar and says, don't you get this? You're born of man. You're a descendant of Adam. You have no ability to honor God apart from God. You can never earn an ounce of his favor or blessing. All that you can do is further solidify and cement your lost condition apart from him. You are who you are. All that is born of the flesh is flesh. And no attendance to church, no familial pedigree, no education, no service can change that. Isaiah 64, six says, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. Jesus is highlighting to Nicodemus, presumably the most righteous man in the world in his own mind. You don't need to step up another rung on the ladder. You need to be born again because you can't do anything in your own strength. Jeremiah 13 asks us a question. Can an Ethiopian change his skin? What's the answer? Talk to me. 
No. Can a leopard change his spots? What's the answer? No. And neither can you, by your own merit or achievement, earn your way to God. There is no such thing as a person who is born a Christian and no Christian school, college, family, or behavior provides any exceptions. Jesus is looking at Nicodemus with love in his heart and says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for you to earn your way to God. Don't you get it, Nicodemus? And don't you get it, student? You need to have a miracle of God in your heart. God has to do a miracle in your heart. Look at Ezekiel 36 again. It says, God has to take your heart of stone and transform it into a heart of flesh. A miracle of God has to take place in order for us to be a child of God. And as you play no role in your physical birth, you play absolutely no role in your spiritual birth. You didn't knock on the door of your mommy's womb and say, let me into this world. It's a funny thing to say, right? And Nicodemus is going, of course not. And Jesus is saying, that's the same way it is with my heavenly kingdom. This isn't synergistic. It's not, it takes two to tango. This is monergistic. There is one person doing the work. Nicodemus says, how can I possibly do this? And Jesus says, don't you get it? You can't. This is impossible for you to do. And remember what we talked about the other day? The impossible is the perfect place for God's glory to shine. That's where he operates. But if you don't understand that it's impossible for you to do on your own effort or in your own effort, it'll never be perceived as a miracle of God. I want you to notice the language in Ezekiel 36, 25. Because there is no achievement-based salvation method. Jesus, or God says, I will sprinkle clean water and you will be clean. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. This is entirely a miraculous work of God. Scene one, the man. Scene two, scene two the method. Scene three, the means. Look at John 3, and we'll continue on in our story. Look at verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe me, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now watch this. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite reference to himself in the Gospels. That's what he calls himself more than anything else. What is he talking about? Moses lifting up serpents? I didn't see this part in the Prince of Egypt. Back in Numbers 21, the children of Israel are brought out of Egypt and they start to complain. Why have you brought us out here to die? You should have left us in Egypt. There we had better food. And they begin to complain. So God, because of their grumbling and disobedience, it reads in Numbers 21.6. Write these verses down because I want you to see the integration of scripture. 
Numbers 21.6, it says, God sent fiery serpents among the people because of their grumbling, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, when he looks up, he shall live. Nicodemus would have known this story well. The Israelites were bitten by poisonous serpents, and it says that their venom ran through their veins like fire. So they come to Moses, and they say, Moses, we have sinned. We've grumbled against God. We've complained against God. Please have God extend us mercy. Go to him. Beg him that he might extend us mercy. We are dying here. We're writhing on the desert wilderness floor. We need mercy And God in his grace provided a solution and told Moses to take a bronze serpent, to place it up on a pole, to lift it high and say, whoever looks upon that serpent, he will be cleansed and he will be delivered and the venom will be no more. And everyone who does not will surely die. That's the story. And Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus, There is a more deadly venom that runs through your vein than the venom of asps. It is the toxic venom of sin. And it did not come from a snake bite. It came from your first parents, Adam. You have been diseased by sin. You have been infested and infected with the sting And you cannot compare your infection to someone else's infection because everyone that has this disease running through them has one common denominator, the grave. There are no exceptions. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus what he tells us today. You have a poison. Listen to me. Hear the word of God. You have a poison that runs into the depths of your soul. And the only remedy is that you look upon the one who will be lifted up in order that you might be delivered. But this time, the remedy will not be a serpent on a pole. It will be the creator of the universe nailed to a cross. And whoever looks to him will be healed. Turn to John 18. I want to pick up the story where we started on Sunday evening with Sarah. Beginning in John 12, through the rest of John, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. In John chapter 11, he's going to heal Lazarus, and he's going to do it in Bethany, right outside of Jerusalem, right before the Passover, when millions of people are coming into Jerusalem, and everyone's going to be talking about it. It's going to be the talk of the town. Then he's going to hang out with his disciples, and in a matter of days, on Sunday, he's going to march through the city, and they're going to say, Hosanna, Hosanna. And five days later, they're going to be yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. What do you want us to do with him? Crucify him. John 18, verse 33. Yep, yep. Okay. Okay. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? That's sarcastic. Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. I just want to pause real quick because the Bible's cool. In Isaiah, one angel of the Lord, 
wipes out 186,000 Assyrians. One. And he says in the garden, I can call down legions of them. Jesus wasn't forced to the cross. He went willingly. That's why he came. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Verse 37, therefore Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you said correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into this world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pause. God's kingdom is a kingdom of truth. Pilate said to him, verse 38, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to him, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out saying, not this man, but Barabbas. And then it just gives us a description. Now Barabbas was a robber, a legitimate criminal. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they begin to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. We read so casually, Pilate took him and scourged him. It means to whip, to flog. Well, here's what that means. We probably have a very tame understanding of this. Romans were professional executioners. This is what they were known for. They used to crucify people for 40 miles leading up into a city so that everyone would know, don't mess with Rome. And a flog is not like a spanking. It's much worse. It's hard for us to comprehend the pain of this. The Roman scourge basically consisted of a short wooden handle where there were leather leashes attached to it. And at the end of those leather leashes were shards of bone, glass, and steel. Then the body of the person, Jesus in this scenario, would be wrapped around a pole. And then six different guys, because they would get exhausted, six different guys would take their turns going absolutely full strength, full capacity at the prisoner. The Jews had a rule that they could only do 39 lashes because typically on the 40th you would die but the Romans had no such rule. And so with the bone and the lead, the metal, the glass, there the person was lashed until their body was ripped to shreds. It would have looked like Jesus had gone through a blender. It's not just in the back, but everywhere. Bones would have been made visible. Blood would have been everywhere. And the soldiers would have been laughing. Hail, king of the Jews. What a joke. Oh, hey, king, I got a crown for you. Then they would take a crown of thorns. It's not like little rosebuds. It's thorns that are presumably four to six inches long. And then they would ram them into his skull. And then they would mock him and hit him. And they would slap him in the face, it says in verse 3. This was all a comedy to them. This was a comedy to make him look like an idiot. Kneeling down before him, oh, hail, oh, hail, let me get on my knees, boom. How powerful are you now, king? Stupid. Verse four, 
Pilate's goal in Luke 23, because he felt uneasy about this, was to beat him to such a point where the people were satisfied and just said, well, let him live, let him die from his wounds. But Pilate came out again and said to them, behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. There's gonna be six times in the gospels where it says this because you need to understand something. Jesus was guiltless and everyone knew. Verse five, then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, echo homo in the Latin, behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. Then the Jews answered him saying, we have a law and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. You can never convince a first century Jew that Jesus did not make an obvious claim to deity. That's why they killed him. It wasn't like, yeah, some people thought he was God. No, that's why they killed him. This guy made himself out to be the son of God. And they tell Pilate this. And you know what Pilate's response is? He's terrified. It says in verse 8, where is it? Verse 8. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. That word for afraid is phobia. And it literally means terrified. Pilate wasn't like, eh, I don't like this idea. I'm feeling a little queasy. He's going, no, this guy I think might really be a God. I've heard about the miracles, but I'm a Roman. So I know that there's many gods, but I've heard of stories about how God comes down in flesh as human. And so I go in and I ask him in verse nine, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now, Pilate was the governor. He had presided over many trials, over guilty and guiltless, all of which would profess one thing, I'm innocent. But here for the first time is a man who doesn't say a single word, no self-defense, no pleading of his case. Why? Why doesn't he argue back? Why doesn't Jesus defend himself? It's because 700 years earlier, Isaiah 53, 7 says, he will be led like a sheep to the slaughter and he will be silent. Jesus responds in verse 11 or in 10. It says, Pilate said to him, you do, not have, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you? You and I have authority and I and I have authority to crucify you. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And the tone there is, I think, very matter of fact. You would have no authority, Pilate, over me unless it had been given to you by God. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. He's talking about the Jewish leaders. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. I mean, this is hypocrisy at its finest core. In the Old Testament, there was no king but God. And now they're saying, we have no king but Caesar. They're saying whatever they have to to get Jesus murdered. Verse 13, therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, 
Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he handed them over to be crucified. Then they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Pause real quick. I'm gonna read the whole account. I like what Spurgeon says. Five words from this book are better than five million words from the greatest minds in the world. Let the Bible speak for itself. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what have I written? What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garment among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. They're ripping Jesus' clothing to shreds because they just want a piece of it. Therefore, and Jesus would have been naked on a tree at this point. The only people that are there are four women and the guy writing this book. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John who's writing this, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. He's basically looking at John, the gospel writer, and saying, my friend, take care of my mom. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. Why? Because he's a human. He's fully man. He's not a genie. He's fully man. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not be, remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. Pause real quick. The reason they would break the legs of the people hanging on the cross is because you would no longer be able to prop yourself up and get air. People died on the cross, not from blood, but from asphyxiation. They couldn't breathe anymore because they were hanging there. So what they would have to do is push themselves up to gasp for air. And so what they would do after a certain point, because they didn't want to have anybody crucified on the Passover, is they would go over with the club and go, bam, bam, and break their calves, break their legs, their shins, so they would no longer be able to get air. They came to Jesus, and they see what? Verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs but one of the soldiers, just for good measure, pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he, watch this, who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling you the truth so that you may believe. For the things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. 
John the gospel writer saying, listen, this isn't a fairy tale. I saw Jesus, the son of God, slaughtered before my very eyes. I saw him die. He was dead, dead. The question is, why did Jesus have to die? Why did someone have to be lifted up? Well, Hebrews 9 says that the blood of goats and rams could never take away sin. Remember last night we were talking about the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the tax collector is looking left and then right, and he's going, I mean, there's no way that a lamb could fully and finally and completely satisfy the wrath of God. And he would have known that we've been doing this for hundreds, if not thousands of years. The priests were butchers. And every single lamb and every single sacrifice was a reminder that God is holy, we are not, and we long for a final sacrifice. We need a perfect one. And that is why John the Baptist sees Jesus come on the scene in John 1 and says, behold the what? The lamb of God. The pure, spotless, blameless, sinless lamb of God was led to the altar of Calvary and slaughtered like an animal. And there the full measure of the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ for those who would believe in him. Did you catch that? The most excruciating part of the cross was not the physical pain. It was the pain, the grief, the sin, and the shame that Jesus bore on the cross. You know when Jesus says in the garden, Father, let this cup pass? What's the cup? You need to understand this because we talked about this last night. The cup that Jesus was most dreading, but yet eager, it says in Hebrews, to drink, was the full measure of the wrath of God towards sin for those who would place their faith in Jesus Christ. There are only two options. God's wrath will be poured out on Jesus Christ once and for all on the cross, or God's wrath will be poured out for all of eternity on those who reject him. All sin is paid for. We just sang it. Either once and for all by Jesus Christ or by the sinner for all of eternity. I want to put up familiar lyrics, Kayla. I think you have them. And you know the song. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, the gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was, say it with me, satisfied. God's wrath was totally satisfied on Jesus Christ. For you. For you. And maybe you're wondering, what's the proof of that? How can I know that? How can I believe that? How do we actually know that's true? John 20, first 10 verses. You ready? Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, and while it was still dark and saw the stone had already taken away from the tomb... So she ran and came to Simon Peter, the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. 
And stooping and looking in it, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and enlisted, entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place all by itself. So the other disciples who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed, for at yet they had not yet understood the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. I gotta keep reading. So the disciples went away again to their homes, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And there said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, well, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. I love this. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, there must have been something about the way he said it. He said, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus rose from the dead as the final proof that the wrath of God is poured out for Jesus, on Jesus Christ for those who would believe. It's the proof of his deity. It's the proof of God's wrath being satisfied for those who would believe. It's the proof of his power, Romans 1.4. He was proved to be the son of God by the power of the resurrection. Can we go to the next verse in, in that song, Kayla? There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And we have the next one. And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip, in, grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Keep going if you have it, Caleb. No guilt in life. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. No fear in death. Why? Because he's the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even if he dies. So no fear in death. In a world crippled and paranoid by death, you don't have to ever fear death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. That is the gospel. Jesus died for you. He, he did this to satisfy God's wrath. And you might be wondering, what could possibly motivate this type of sacrifice? What could possibly compel the God of the universe? In Psalm 8, it says, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. When I look up in the, in the night sky, I see the stars. Everything that you have made, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? That you even know I exist. And then you read an account like this and go, wait, God, the one who created all things on Monday morning is the same God who humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, endured the slaps and the spits and the scoffing and the whips and the nails and the spear. Why? 
We've only covered three scenes. Turn back to John 3. Verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Fourth scene here. What is the motive? What could compel God to do this? Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. I'm afraid this verse is so familiar to you that you no longer bask in the wonder of it. But this unfathomable love is nonetheless real, and it's evidenced and demonstrated by a naked God-man on a tree he created, murdered by the people he came to save. God's love for you is measured by the gift that he extends to you, and the gift that God gives to you is his one and only son. And here he comes. He strips himself of his robes of righteousness. He gets off his throne and he puts on a mocking purple robe. He takes off his crown of glory and he takes on a crown of thorns. He leaves his fiercely loyal angels and seraphim and he goes to people that are faithless and fickle who on Sunday say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he. He's the best. And on Friday, what do you want me to do with this man? Crucify him. Why would he do this? It is because God deeply, deeply loves you. Deeply. Deeply. Profoundly immeasurably amazing love how can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me maybe you're still asking one more question and it needs to be clarified and hammered home if this is how okay I I see the need I need to be born again I feel it I want to be a new creation. It says in Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I want that. I'm tired of my sin. I'm tired of my shame. I don't want to even just play the game anymore. I don't want to just know the right answers. I want God to change my heart. I want a new heart, God. Please. You could be an adulterer or a pastor's kid, and both of you potentially have not ever had God change and transform your heart. Because when God changes your heart, he causes you to be changed in your affections, your loyalties, your allegiance, your desires. Not perfectly, but directionally. Have you ever had a new heart? Has God ever changed you? How does this wonderful eternal life 
and adoption into the family of God become ours. We just read it. Right? It says that whosoever what? Believes. John 1, 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Believe. John 20, 31. Write it down. We already looked at this. These things I have written to you so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ and in believing you may have life in his name. Faith is the method. Listen here. Faith is the sole method. Faith in Christ is the sole method by which God takes our sin upon Jesus Christ on the cross and punishes Jesus for our sin and transfers to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because he lived a life you could never live. And because of the gospel, he takes your sin, he takes your shame, and he transfers over to you his holiness and his righteousness so that God no longer will look upon you and look at you and say, dirty, And he won't just look at you and say, forgiven. He'll look at you and say, righteous as my son, Jesus Christ, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, my son, my daughter, born again by one single method, faith in Jesus Christ as the son of God who died for you, who rose for you, who intercedes for you, and who prepares a place for you. Vile, ungodly, hypocritical, self-righteous sinners are saved by one method. Faith. And I'm like, God, I want that. How do I get faith? How do I get faith? The Bible's also crystal clear on this. You come to Jesus and you ask him for it. It's not a prayer. It's not a walking of an aisle. Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, do you feel the weight of your sin? He says, come to me. He says, look to me in John 7. He says, if anyone thirsts, come to me. Isaiah 55, it says, ho. It means literally, it's a loud remark. It's a heralding. It says, everyone that thirsts, everyone that is hungry, come eat, come drink, come buy wine and bread without money and without cost. Acts 16 says, come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the text will always, always say, whosoever believes, meaning that there are no reservations and no footnotes attached to who can come. You come to Jesus and you say, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. I want a new heart. You come to him and ask him for it. You don't come and say, I'm here. You come and say, oh God, please make me new. Be merciful to me, the sinner. I need a new heart. I want the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Please, God, be merciful to me. I beg you. And the promise of a God who cannot lie is that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the mouth someone confesses and with the heart someone believes, resulting in salvation. Have you ever doubted the love of God? Are you unsure of his kindness? Are you uncertain about his mercy and his grace? 
then look no further than the God-man that hangs in your place. I always wonder if Barabbas, the robber that was released, went and watched. You know, he's released. Who do you want in Jesus' dead? We want Barabbas. But I wonder if he went to a neighboring hill and just watched and had some sort of moment when he went, I live because that man died in my place. Every single Christian is a Barabbas. I live because that man died in my place. In chapter 18, Pilate will ask the question, what do you do with this man they call the Christ? He looks at the people and says, what will you do with this person who says he is the king? There potentially is no more relevant question in all of human history. What will you do with Jesus Christ? There are two options. You can scoff, spit, scorn, and reject, or bow, plead, believe, and receive. Everything in between doesn't matter because there's only two destinations. It doesn't matter what category of unbelief you're in. All the categories of unbelief end up in the same place. What will you do with the person of Jesus Christ? Your eternal destiny is determined by how you answer that question. You confess him as Lord, as God, as Father, as King, as Savior, Redeemer, Deliverer, and Friend. And you receive forgiveness, and you receive joy, and you receive fulfillment, it says in John 10, 10, and you receive life, and you receive the promise of eternal life. Why would you choose anything else? You may be asking, is there another way? Jesus says, I am the only way. You may be asking, uh, is there any other truth? Jesus says, I am the truth. And you might be asking, is there any other life? Jesus says, I am the life. O perfect redemption, the, pro the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. It's the lyrics of the song, To God Be the Glory. Question for you, and then we'll be done. Are there anybody in here that needs to be born again tonight? Would you pray with me? As your head is bowed, I want you to consider the love of God, the love of Jesus Christ. It says in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his own love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, meaning that God did not meet us halfway. He paid it all. 
because he is the way. Lord, I'm sure that there are a number of people in here that feel the guilt and the weight of their sin, that recognize they need to be born again. They need new life. Their life is so riddled with sin and guilt, and their conscience is screaming at them that they need a savior. Lord, tonight, would you please help them to understand that they can this very day receive forgiveness and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the vilest, that's the worst, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. God, I am sure that there are some in here who go, I want a pardon from Jesus. I want my sins paid for. I want the promise of eternal life because of God's kindness and mercy and grace. If I'm talking to someone like you tonight, while everyone else is bowed and you know that you want to be, receive Jesus Christ tonight, and you want to signify surrender to Jesus Christ, would you just look at me, everyone else, keep your eyes bowed or your head down. If you want to be born again, if you want new life in Jesus Christ, would you look at me with your eyes open tonight? I'm just going to talk to you for a moment. What this means is not that the act of standing or the act of praying a prayer is salvific, meaning that that's what saves you. What we're doing tonight is if you want to signify that Jesus, I need him as my savior. I need him to redeem me. I need him to change me. This is signifying that, and it's making a stand going, I, I want this new life. If you know you need Christ and you know you need a savior, I want you to look at me. I want to tell you something about the gospel. The gospel means that you're not only saved by grace, but it means that the rest of your life is empowered and enabled by grace. The same power that saves you tonight is the same power that sustains you the rest of your life. I'm so thankful for the work of God in your heart. Now, let me continue to pray. Lord, I, I thank you so much for the work that you've done tonight. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, now here's what the Bible believes, and here's what the Bible says. We have been saved not to a private faith, but to a public faith, that we could shine as lights. Everyone pause real quick. That we could shine as lights in a dark world. And in a moment, if you looked at me while you were, we were praying, I'm going to ask you to stand, and here's why I want you to stand. It's because for the Christian that's received new life, they're called to evidence and demonstrate and declare that to the world around them. I've been changed by God. So in a moment, I'm gonna ask you to stand. I want you to stay back, talk to your counselors about this. But I want you to stand and go, man, this is something that God has done in my heart. So if you signify that you wanna give your life to the Lord tonight, you receive new life in Jesus Christ, would you stand in one, two, three? Stand up, please. awesome. Keep standing. Keep standing. Why didn't everyone stand with me? Let's do that. Everyone stand with me. The response of the redeemed is worship. So can we do that together? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's do it.